During today's episode, we talk about drug use, addiction, and overdose, as well as dangers associated with the drug trade, including prostitution and sex trafficking. This can be triggering for some listeners, so please continue listening at your discretion. We always want to focus on what is best for your mental health. And if you or someone you know is struggling, please use the Crisis Text Line, which offers free 24-7 support for those in crisis. Troy Love in Our Arms has partners with them to connect people with a trained counselor. All you have to do is text the keyword TULOHA, which is T-W-L-O-H-A, to the number 741741. A trained crisis counselor receives that text and responds quickly. To find more 24-hour helplines, counseling centers, and support groups, you can also head to tuloha.com slash findhelp. That's T-W-L-O-H-A dot com slash findhelp. You're listening to The Wonder Podcast, brought to you by Be The Change Youth Initiative, where we believe everyone should be seen, heard, and loved. We're committed to educating, equipping, and empowering youth to use their lives in advocacy for others. The Wonder Podcast was created to be a space where we truly see and hear one another. Because when we listen to people's stories, empathy is cultivated. So we'd like to invite you along with us as we listen and learn from others. This is The Wonder Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Wonder Podcast. I'm very excited about this conversation. We have a special guest with us today, Assistant U.S. Attorney Dan Perry. I usually do the introductions, but today, since I have my dad with me, I thought it'd be cool for him to talk a little bit about how they know each other since they used to be co-workers. So, uh, like Sydney said, it's my pleasure to introduce Dan Perry. He's an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the District of Maine. He served in that role for about 20 to 22 years in a variety of capacities and relevant to today's discussion, Dan was the OCDEP chief in the district, uh, overseeing the organized gr- crime drug enforcement task force for a number of years. Um, not many people know this, but Dan is probably the person that encouraged me to pursue a career with the US Attorney's Office. We worked a number of cases when I was with the Attorney General's Office back at the beginning of my career. Uh, we collaborated in a bunch of cases and he encouraged me to apply for a vacancy and was probably instrumental in me getting that job Uh, looking back on that now. Um, In addition to being a colleague, a mentor, a friend, and an accomplished trial lawyer, he's just a good guy. Uh, We've told the story a number of times on the road, but when we sold our house in March of uh, 2019, before we began this journey, we had no place to land. There was a period of about two weeks where we didn't have a home. You got uh, Deirdre, myself, four kids, a dog, uh, various belongings, and we still hadn't purchased a motorhome. And Dan graciously offered to open up his beach house that he doesn't open up for another month, like I think it was April or May, uh, which required him to spend a couple hours, and I think he was in a suit when he did it, chipping away at ice and snow to get into a shed door to get the device needed to dig a hole about a foot in the ground, which took us an hour to find, and uh, turn the water on for us to move in there for two weeks, well in advance of schedule. I think he actually had to saw the bottom of the door off. I could send you pictures because it is sawed off. It's probably still like that. Um, so very pleased to have Dan today. Uh, he's extremely knowledgeable in this field and uh, hoping we can learn a lot from this conversation. Talk about softening up. Thank you for the kind words. Yeah, man. It's true. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for coming on today. Um, before we start, I usually ask three get to know you questions, kind of like icebreaker questions. So the first one that I'm going to ask is what's your most memorable case you've worked? That's hard because I've, I've, I've been a lawyer now 31 years, which is amazing. I mean, it just, it's, it, time flies. And there've been so many memorable ones. Um, you know, I, I've done a case when I was a private practitioner where an insurance company was suing to take a, my client's house away. And through a lawsuit, we were able to keep her in her house um, and just to see her emotions to have prevailed because she thought she didn't know when she was going to lose her house. And so, so, you know, have that impact. But then as a prosecutor, you know, I would say one of the cases I collaborated with Jamie the, against the Iron Horseman motorcycle gang. Um, when Jamie was with the AG's office, and he's right. I mean, it was his great efforts in that case that I said, we've got to get this guy to the U.S. Attorney's office. Um, but that was a complicated case over multiple states. Um, you know, there were some bad people doing bad things in that case, and we were able to convict them and get them off the streets uh, through a lot of hard work from a lot of agents. Um, and we had some trials and tribulations along the way, but it was overcoming those obstacles that makes those cases memorable. So I, I'd say that was definitely one of them. You want me to ask that one? Go ahead. My dad made me ask this question. What is your favorite mode of transportation? Oh, there's no doubt. Scooter. I have, <laughs> he was going to say that. I have. I am uh, not a motorcycle, not a, a moped. Yeah, in the, in the, 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 the thing that's funny about the scooter is I've actually been pulled over twice by my local town police department um, for pulling a golf cart with my scooter. And I actually had to go to court once. I to defend myself and i and i won oh my god yep it is yep. wow <laughs> yeah wow yeah. that is incredible yeah. there's, there's not a lot of crime in that town if they're pulling no no no, no. A scooter with a <laughs> oh my god yeah, yeah. driving to endanger wow oh my goodness yep. okay and then last question what do you miss most about my dad the foot <laughs> massages Definitely the foot massages. Now, Jamie's, Jamie's, you know, Jamie is so lovable and he's easy to pick on. So you can always go in and pick on Jamie. Always. I mean, it, it, was could, just, have been, it, it could have been the softball game where I busted my finger. Oh my God. Well, you brought that up, not me. Does she know the story? I don't think she does. I've never heard any of this. Oh, I got do I have permission. Yeah, let's roll with it. So Sid, so Sid, when we uh, we had an office softball team, and it was a lot of fun, great camaraderie, and Jamie, being a trooper he is, joins the team, and he's playing center field, and someone hits a drive, and Jamie hustles after it like, it, like he would, goes to get it, and he jams his finger. And I think it was in the glove, wasn't it? No, it was your non No, it wasn't in the glove. It was the glove. He jams his finger against the ground, and – doesn't you don't he, you don't hear him yell out or anything but he comes to the bench after the innings over and his finger is bleeding profusely i mean like it's it probably needed medical attention um but us being us we're like jamie oh come on suck it up get back out there no he's like no it's really bleeding so we're like okay where's the first aid kit nobody had the first aid kit we go to the other team where's your first aid kit no first aid kit and it's bleeding profusely but fortunately we had a fan who would sit and knit on the bench and she was very well. She goes, well, I don't have a, a Band-Aid, but I, I do have a tampon. And so we were able to jerry-rig that for Jamie. And Jamie did. It worked. It worked. And so Jamie, being the trooper he was, put it on and went back out there. 
Oh my god, I have so much more respect for you. <laughs> the, the visual. Oh my gosh, that is just perfect. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is so perfect. <laughs> doesn't, that, doesn't it sum up your dad though, Sid? It does. So well. So yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, wow. Okay, well, even with just these questions, we could totally just end the conversation. People would be like, yep, that was it. <laughs> Oh, oh my gosh, that is so say, good. It was entertaining going to work every day. Wow. It was. Never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. That's so amazing. Oh, I'm so glad I know these stories now. <laughs> we have to also tell you, like, when, because you're saying, well, my favorite office memories. So mm -hmm. another about your dad is, your dad has foot issues. You probably know that, but he had a very dedicated paralegal assistant mm -hmm. who would massage his feet no he offered it's, he never actually did it oh that's not true i would take in my, my shoes off in, in my office in my, my memory in my, never massaged uh, my feet. there there are eyewitness accounts that they, he did it oh, we have I got gotta, there, i gotta dispute that there, there are people who are gonna swear out affidavit saying they saw it. i want their names <laughs> <laughs> they're in witness protection oh my this is so good. This is probably one of my favorite podcast interviews so far. <laughs> There's no substance. I told you it would be. Yeah. It's so good. Right, oh my gosh. Okay, right. Yes. First actual question beginning this conversation. So the U.S. Attorney's Office partnered with Henry Gates, who you both know as Skip, several years ago in a program to bring awareness to students at middle schools and high schools about the dangers of drug use, uh, specifically opiates. Can you share a little about Henry Gates and his story? Um, and what was the central message that both of you shared with students? Great question. So it's, I, it's funny when you say Henry Gates, I'm like, I don't know what Henry Gates, I only know Skip Gates. And so Skip Gates is, is a lifelong educator. Um, he taught math. Uh, at a high school here in Maine, and he raised two incredible kids, Will and Sam Gates. Um, and unfortunately, in 2009, um, Skip got the call that no parent ever wanted to. He was called out of the classroom, um, and there was a, a police office from Burlington, Vermont, to tell him that his son had been found dead that morning from a, from a heroin overdose. Um, and from that unspeakable tragedy, um, Skip de dedicated his life, um, and he did it until just recently, um, partnering up with the U.S. Attorney's Office, both in Vermont initially and then with our office in Maine, um, to go into schools. And, it, and the, the program we did at schools was surrounded by a 23-minute video called The Opiate Effect, made by a wonderful filmmaker from Burlington, Vermont. Uh, I would highly encourage it's available on Vimeo and on YouTube TV. The video itself is incredibly powerful. But Skip, because of his background as an educator, was able to talk to kids in a way that a lot of adults can't. I mean, I've been around and done student presentations that there are people who can talk to kids and there are people who cannot talk to kids. Skip, Skip has it. And he would talk about, about the, the journey he had been on since getting that phone call. Um, and, and the message we had in partnering with Skip was we, we didn't go in to talk to kids we were there to talk with kids and we weren't telling them how to think or what to think. We just wanted them to think. That was the message. That's the message of the opiate effect, the movie. Um, and it's ironic that another powerful thing about the movie is that the movie isn't just about Will Gates's tragic story, but there was three people that uh, were 
suffered from opiate addiction, um, got their life back together, and like they they were kind of positives. Well, unfortunately, one of the individuals by the name of Matt Cobb, by the time we were giving the presentation in 2016, 2017, the movie was made in 2011, he had um, gone into, he had started becoming addicted again and committed a couple of armed robberies in Vermont and went to jail. For, he's still in jail. He went to jail for an, ex, an extensive period of time. So you had this snapshot of him talking about the devastation drugs had done to him. But he had got over it. It was in his background. He was now doing well. And then, you know, the, you know, the sequel, so to speak, for Matt Cobb didn't work out all that well. So um, it just shows you the tragedy of opiates. You know, obviously, death is the worst. And hearing Skip talk about the sorrow and the loss and how he always, like he describes it as a trap door opened and started falling. And he's been falling every day since. Um, and he says it was such raw emotion. Um, and and so that's what we that's what we did. We went to to numerous high schools in Maine um, and, and gave that presentation. And we did it for I'd say about six or seven years. Wow. Um, what are some of the things that you wanted teens to take away from that presentation? Every action has consequences. Um, the analogy I use because I hate roller coasters. I mean, with a passion, I cannot stand roller coasters, but every once in a while I forget how much I hate them and I'll go on them. But as soon as I sit down in the chair and the harness comes over you, there's no escape. You're on for that ride. Whether you, no matter what happens, you're on for that ride. You can beg all you want. You can scream all you want. Cause I've done that. They won't open the harness to let you out. Okay. Um, and that's what I tell people about drugs is you may get on that ride and I'm not going to kid you. You may like the feeling of the drugs. You may enjoy the ride, but you don't know what the ride's going to be like. And if you want to get off, you're not getting off. And so you are literally giving up everything you want. You're not going to, you think, okay, I'm, 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 I'm escaping. I'm going to go to a place where things good. And what you're really doing is that you're giving up absolute control of your life. And, and I tell the story of, of cases in, in opiates, opioids and opiates are like no other drug that we've, you know, we, we have all kinds of drug cases. We have crack cases, we have cocaine cases, marijuana cases, methamphetamine cases. Opiates really are a whole different animal in terms of how they just take over your life. Uh, I tell people how uh, I've done cases where people leave their family at Christmas Eve to do a drug run down to Massachusetts because they have to get the drugs or the, the people who sell their bodies because they have to. It's not a choice of like, hey, I like that. I like how that feels. And I, I, I choose to get that drug. They cannot not have that drug. They lose all control of that drug. Um, and you know, a success story on opiates is someone who's in rem who, who's on medically assisted treatment. And I, and I don't want to dismiss medically assisted treatment because it's the, the, the gold standard for recovery. But think about how you know going to a methadone clinic on a daily basis is a success story. I mean, is that how? Is that how you want to live the rest of your life, that you have to drive to a methadone clinic or you have to go to a Suboxone doctor, things like that? And so in that success, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to belittle that because it is success. It's a, you've got back your life back together, but now you're on a drug for the rest of your life. Um, and is, is it worth it? So that's what we tell people in that, in that it's, you know, you might find that like in the movie, how it starts is somebody grabs a bottle of oxycodones out of a grandparent's medical cabinet. Uh, and that's how it starts. And, it, and it, it starts small, but you're opening this whole door to a lot 
more dangerous things. And so that, that first little pill, and, and oftentimes it's not going to be you that takes it. It's going to be your friend who's going to say, hey, I've got them. We wanted these kids to understand, to make those decisions early on that it wasn't just a simple task of popping a pill in your mouth or, or crushing a pill or snorting something, that you are getting on that ride and you have no idea where it's going and you don't have control when you get off. Didn't, didn't the Attorney General um, in Maine several years ago have a PSA where it was a first shot, last shot? And the yes. idea being yes. you don't know what you're ingesting. This stuff is made clandestinely in Mexico. Uh, and then the purities often differ. So it could be the first time you try it and it's going to be the last time because you're going to end up dying of an overdose. Well, and that's, and that's interesting, Jamie, because when we first started doing the opiate effect talk, fentanyl was not, was non-existent. Yeah. I mean, so we haven't even talked about fentanyl. I was, I was more or less referencing oxy, oxycodones and heroin because that's where it started. But then probably around 2015, 2016, fentanyl started hitting the market and that's a synthetic opiate. That is, is absolutely, it can be your very first shot, be deadly. I mean, one of the most uh, dangerous situations is someone who's been in recovery and maybe in a sober house and gets out and, and, and can't resist the urge and goes and tries to get an oxy once. And the problem is these days, it's easy to make a, a counterfeit pill. And so they think they're snorting oxys and they just snorted fentanyl and they're, they're dead. It's an extremely deadly substance. Um, but then we use that as an example. There are people who chase the fentanyl because it's a, it's a, a much higher high. Uh, and that's when you talk about getting on the roller coaster. Think about that, where you are knowingly chasing something, knowing it could kill you. Um, and and um, you know, one of the stories I tell is there was a situation, two young men, um, I think it was 21, and the brother, I think, was 19. The brother died in his bed at 21. His mother discovered him. His brother was away. His brother came home, called up the dealer and ordered up. He said, I want the same stuff that killed my brother. Got it. The mother found him dead in the bed, but he was able to be recovered. He was able to be resuscitated with Narcan. Think about that existence. And so that's, that's what we're, that's the power of these drugs. And, and, and it's just because we tend to think, oh, drugs are drugs. Well, no, they're, they're, these are a different animals. Um, and it's proven physiologically what they do to the brain. Um, so that's what we talk about. Thank you for sharing that. Um, on Monday, we shared some statistics on teen drug use and approximately one in seven adolescents admitted using pain meds, either without a doctor's permission or differently than prescribed. And more than one in five respondents to the survey reported having been having been offered, sold, or given illegal drugs on school property. So from a legal standpoint, what are some things that youth should consider before experimenting with drugs? Yeah, and I think you touched uh, and, on a lot of it too, but right. like yeah. the legal jeopardy that these kids really don't think about and they get into. Right. Well, that and, that, and that's one thing Skip touches on, and I actually didn't touch on it much, Skip would, but... And if you're, if you're become, if you're convicted of a drug distribution and then dr distribution doesn't mean I sold it to you. I could be just giving it to you. Um, distribution means distribute, give to you. And uh, if you're convicted of that, goodbye, federal employment, goodbye, probably state employment in most states, a lot of companies won't hire you. Uh, and so uh, the act of just distributing, even if it's a, a friend, Hey, I got this bottle out of my grandma's medicine cabinet and let's go do some pills at a party. You know, I brought the bottle to a party. Um, secondly, 
God forbid the person you distribute to dies or gets injured because then you're liable. And the fact that you didn't make any money or anything like that is, is there are in, in the federal system. If you distribute drugs causing the death of another individual, it's a 20 year mandatory minimum. Um, and, and which is a tough, tough thing. Cause we see that we see situations where a girlfriend would go pick up a small amount of drugs for her and her boyfriend to do. They come back and the boyfriend dies of an overdose. She doesn't die of the overdose, but she's now a felon and going to get 20 years in jail. And those are, those are tough cases for us because, you know, we, we do them because we want to deter other people from doing them. But, you know, it's hard to see two lives ruined like that. And so the, the idea of just sharing drugs is not some, it's not just a simple act of, of sharing drugs. Yeah. Some people might be listening to this and thinking like, why would you bring a federal prosecutor on to talk about drugs, especially as it pertains to youth and mental health. Um, but we believe in the importance of having all voices within the conversation, um, multiple different perspectives, because we think it gives the best chance to create a real holistic change. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on this and what you might say to someone who is resistant to the idea of having law enforcement being a part of the mental health conversation. Well, I, I, believe me, a lot of people that we see have mental health dynamics. And, and I will say the good thing in the last 10 years is law enforcement has become more and more informed and more and more adaptable to those those things. I mean, I, in, when I started my career as a prosecutor 22 years ago, we had the word junkie and crack hoe. And, you know, we would say things like that. That verbiage is completely gone. Um, we recognize that substance abuse is a medical condition. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with mental health. And so, but there's also people that are involved in the business of drug dealing that are bad people. They don't care that they're making money of the misery, misery of other people. They, they're, they're there to make money and they don't care what they're doing to our communities, what they're doing to our families, what they're doing to our brothers and sisters. And so law enforcement has a role. I, you know, I, I was called as a three-legged stool. You, you have treatment, you have prevention, and you have enforcement. And so, and, and we, we were very actively involved in something called the Maine Opiate uh, Collaborative. And, and that was all about getting people from those three different areas to talk to each other to understand each other because a lot of times law enforcement were in our silo um, and there are people who don't, who, who are not good. They don't think about it as a more holistic approach. There are prevention people who don't think, look at it and see the value of enforcement. And then there are treatment people that don't see the value of enforcement. And so by getting everyone together and to collaborate, we opened a lot of eyes and we, we moved the ball in the right direction in the state of Maine. But that's why as a prosecutor, you know, one of the things, People say, oh, what's it like to put bad guys in jail? It's enjoyable to, to, to put someone who's a, who poses a risk to, to the public away or to get justice for a victim. It's just as rewarding to be able to intervene on the behalf of a 19 or 20 or 21-year-old kid and divert his case, get him into drug court, don't get him a felony conviction, um, protect the public from his drug dealing, but at the same time get his life steered straight. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you some of the more sorrowful moments is when people who I thought who had turned the corner and had gotten themselves righted from the drug addiction, you read in the paper, they died of a drug overdose. Um, and so that's a case we failed that person. Um, you know, they, they, we, we had put that person where we thought was in the right direction and, and then 
the, the demons got to him or her. And so um, if someone says law, law enforcement doesn't have any place in the, in the equation, I don't know, if, I don't think if they were talking about is arrest everybody and throw them up in jail the solution? Absolutely not. But that is very rare in law enforcement out to have that conversation. We realize, you know, that the war on drugs is not a good analogy. Um, it is a war in the sense that it's a relentless effort, but to, to have a war mentality is not the right approach to the, the problem because it's not a one size fits all solution. This is a lot of really great information that I'm going to have to look back and research more on because I feel like there's just so many things that people miss um, that I miss. I mean, I've heard a lot of different stories from my dad, but he even he doesn't really like talking a lot about cases because it is so heavy. I don't know if you want to speak into that more, but. No, I tried to deliberately. I mean, it's what we do in a, on a day in, day out, or what I used to do on a day in, day out. It's, it, it is heavy stuff. Right. Um, and it's, it's stuff that I didn't want to burden my family with. What would you say, um, just because Sydney has this burden, uh, especially for young girls uh, that may be confronted with the opportunity to use drugs, what are the perils that are unique to young women and teenagers that someone should really, like you're talking about, think about what the consequences may be? Right. What have you well, seen and I, experience? Yeah, well, well, and I'll tell you, one of the, the newer phenomena is with social media. I mean, in the old days, um, your world was a small world. I mean, who you, who you had contact with were people in your school, maybe in your community, in your neighborhood. Um, now your neighborhood and your community is the whole wide world. Um, and and I'll, I'll just give an example in case I worked in that someone was on this website that I never even heard of. It was like a dating website and it was, it was connecting people in rural Maine to predators is the only way to describe them in New York. And this dude met this young girl on this line, online website and he showed up at her house waited till the mother had left and then recruited her um, to be his girlfriend. And, and then how he became her, her girlfriend, he then, she started to be involved in the drug trade. Like he would, she would run his drugs. And then eventually she ended up working for him in the sense that she was, became a prostitute on his behalf. And then once she was in that world, she was completely trapped. I mean, unfortunately in Maine, it's well-documented you know, there are people that come up from New York to recruit girls to put them to work in the sex trade. Um, and once they pull them from their family and they're down in New York and they want to get away, they're not getting away. It's, it's amazing because they're, they're in New York City. They don't know anybody. Um, and I can't tell you stress enough that, you know, the, the danger online, the danger even when you meet someone, because sometimes they do it in person. They come to the malls. I mean, we, I, we know of a bar, a particular bar they do this at. Um, in Maine and, and, you know, it, it unfortunately it works and it, it is effective. They were able to recruit these young women and, um, the, the human trafficking aspect of the drug, tra the drug trade is, is well established. And so, um, when someone tells you they love you or you know, the best thing that ever happened to them, uh, and then starts asking you to do illegal things, you know, you have to say, well, if this person truly loves me, why would they be asking me to do these things? Um, and so. 
you know, that's, that's from a, a young woman's perspective. It's very difficult because they, you know, they know who to prey upon, you know, the, the people who have mental health issues, the people who may be isolated from their families. And it's a self-perpetuating thing. Once they start them doing things that they otherwise wouldn't do, they're too ashamed to tell their parents. They're too ashamed to reach out to their friends. Um, and that's one of the things we always say to, in the, in the conversation with Skip, you know, no matter what you've done, somebody loves you and someone's there for you and reach back out to them, whether it's a friend. Um, and for young women, if you see a friend of yours moving away, don't let them move away. Don't let you make the effort to try to get them back, to bet to get them back into your world. Um, and so, because they may be embarrassed because they'll, you know, you may do the old, I told you so, I told you not to hang out with that guy. Um, and they're afraid to, to say, you were right, I should have hung up that, with that guy, but now I'm trapped, what do I do? Um, and so if you're in that situation, as the person who's trapped, please reach out. And if you're, if you're the one who's on the outside looking in, don't, don't be passive and say, hey, they know what they're doing. Try to, try to be the friend who says, you know what? I'm not gonna let this happen. So that, that's, because almost 100% of the time, Sydney, when you see these people, these girls who had the tragic results, it's because they became isolated from the people that loved them and supported them the most. And if we can stop that isolation and get them the help or to address the issue, we can, we can hopefully save that person from being a victim. I know. I feel like the majority of the conversations that we've, I mean, I've had so far for this podcast, but also will continue to have, that's like the underlying issue is community and finding the people that you can trust that you know will love you regardless but sometimes it is hard to believe that those people will love you even if you choose to do these things because there is such a stigma to mental health but also like I know a lot of friends that I've had over the last several years who would be the person to turn away from their friend who was using drugs or alcohol like you know, so being able to be that one person in someone's life that's able to say, like, I want you to know that I'll be there for you, even if you are going through this, is something that even though it is cliche or people would think it's cliche to say, a lot of the time people need to be reminded of that. So the fact that you underline that is really important and is awesome. Yeah. Well, actually, I was going to tell you, so the, the program, Jamie doesn't know this because this is a program we started after uh, Jamie left. We did a thing called trust, um, teaching respect and understanding through simulation training. And I don't want to talk about the trust, but as part of the trust program, we, um, we brought a, a young man named Travis Lehman to, with us to schools. And Travis would be your typical um, main kid, um, loves the outdoors. He was a fisherman, hunter, comes from a very, very good family, very supportive family. Uh, very strong high school student, went to college. Um, while in college, his roommate's dad ran a, um, a, le- a line company. You know, they hang the lines for cable companies or electrical companies. They do the line work. They climb the towers. They hang the wires. And he started making a ton of money doing that. And so he, uh, he started doing that and um, started making so much money, he kind of abandoned his dream of becoming a game warden and he became this he bought the snowmobiles, he bought all the toys you could have. And um, he started small, started smoking marijuana, um, then started, then he fell off. Uh, he, he'd be stoned on the job and he fell off one of the poles, hurt his back, got into oxys, started doing more and more oxys. Long story short, he got into so much debt with his drug dealer, he scaled the, the, the counter of a, 
bank dressed in disguise with a gun, held it to the teller's head, robbed the bank, got caught almost immediately, went to jail for seven years. Um, but as part of his, his way of trying to get redemption is he wanted to talk to the kids. And his story is incredibly powerful because you know, he lost everything. His wife left him. Wife cleaned out the retirement account. Um, he's starting from scratch. He's got a great job now with BIW. But he tells the story. He says, you know, because someone said, what would you do differently? He says, I would have made better choices of who I associated. And so what he talked about, he said, I didn't start my life jumping over that counter with a gun. He goes, I started by smoking weed behind the school with a bunch of the cool kids. And my good friends said, you know, Travis, why are you doing that? And he's like, he poo-pooed it. So the next thing you know, you know, the smoke and the weed behind the school became popping pills and it became skipping class. And then, and then, and he goes, it's not like you did all of a sudden flick a switch. He goes, he goes, it's like a compass. He goes, every day you're moving one degree off what your true north should be. And then you're losing your, you're losing your path. And next thing you know, your compass is completely off because you've been making these wrong one degree decisions. And, and to me, that's what I tell these kids. It's not going to be, oh my God, I'm at that crossroads. What am I going to do? It's the little things. And, and that's who our new, our new educational program is. And he's wonderful, but COVID's put us on the sidelines. But he's, he's, I saw Skip talk and Skip was probably the most powerful. Travis is not far behind from a, for a different perspective. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a super great conversation. I'm glad that my dad reached out to you because this is I, this is really great. <laughs> I, I I am too, and we we will definitely make our way down. We miss you guys. Terrible. Yes. Yeah, it'd be a lot of fun having you down here. Thank you, Dan, for joining us on this episode, and thank you to those listening to this conversation. We'll see you all next week.